talk about that. We're here to talk about the book of James. I'm excited for James. I've never preached through the book of James, so this is going to be a first for me. Um, one of the challenges in your uh, small group time, uh, not to steal the thunder of the small group time, but it's going to be to, to read through the book of James once a week, and uh, that, I think, is, is hitting you guys at the ankles. Um, the book of James is five chapters, and as I was and have been reading through it uh, each day in, in preparation for this series, if, if you can read with any decent amount of speed, you can get through the whole thing in about 10 minutes. Um, it, it doesn't take you a long time. Maybe you say, you know what, I, I'm not a great reader. You can listen to the book of James. You can grab the ESV audio Bible. You can listen to it as you're driving around. And so uh, the challenge is once a week, and I would hope that you guys would all be able to say, yeah, I can do James once a week. In fact, there's only five chapters. You can take two days off during the week and still only read a chapter a day and, and get that done. Uh, but it's a small book, but it's a hugely important book for us as believers, as followers of Christ. It has so much to say for us. In fact, that's the whole reason why we're starting off this series with the question, why James? Why study the book of James? After all, there's 66 books in the Bible. Why land on James? Why should you care about James? Why should you make this, this study a, a priority? Why should you care to be here? Why is it worth your time? Because you guys have plenty of other things that you could be doing, especially now that for so many of you who are in school, the school year is back in session, You've got other things that you could fill this two hours with. So why should James matter to you? And I hope to answer that question for you tonight as we do a little bit of a 30,000-foot survey of the book. But after the message tonight, y'all are all going to get a shirt for free. So if you're, this is your first time here, look at that. You get free swag right off the bat. But you're going to get a shirt for free that, that looks like this. And I, I was hoping that I could hold it and it would hang there, but it's not going to. Um, but the shirt looks like this. It's, uh, it's got our logo on the back as well, but it's, it's pretty simple, isn't it? It's pretty basic. It's, there's not a lot to it. It's, it's the cross, and then it's an arrow. And I'm a, a guy who likes to mark up my Bible, and so I, for a long time, the longest time, I've, I've used that image next to passages that call me to action as a result of my identity in Christ. And so as we've looked at in Romans 6, if you were with us during the summer, if you weren't, you can find those messages on our website, but we talked about that concept of identity. Who I am in Christ is the most important thing about who I am, period. More important than my friends, more important than my uh, family, more important than my job, more important than anything else that the world wants me to identify by. My identity in Christ is the number one thing about me. And so as we read the book of James, we're going to flesh out more about what that identity should practically look like in our lives. How should it work itself out? What does it mean for me to be a Christian on a day-to-day -day basis? And that's the whole point of the cross and the arrow. It's where do we go from salvation? Because God hasn't saved us to leave us the way we were when he saved us. God saved us and now he wants to change us. God saved us, and now he wants to transform us. God saved us, and now he wants to, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, he wants to see us conformed to the image of Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is a, a verse that uh, some of you may know, others may not, but it's a, a verse that's somewhat well-known, at least in the circles of the church, and it says this, for we know that God causes all things to work together for, what's that next word? Good for those who love him. 
and we grab that verse, Romans 8, 28, and we say, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. I love God, therefore everything is going to work together for my good based on my definition of good. But unfortunately, that's not what the passage says. God's definition of good for you is not necessarily that you have a lot of money. God's definition for good for you is not necessarily that you're in a great family. God's definition of good for you is not necessarily that you are pain-free and you are physically healthy. Those, though all those things are, are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, for some of you, that's just not your reality. And so you have to look at a verse like Romans 8, 28 that says that God causes all things to work together for our good, and you have to say, well, what's the problem here? And the problem is we have a, a, a severely lacking definition of good. See, it's according to God's definition of good, and that's what he defines in Romans eight twenty nine. Right after that verse, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Paul then says, for those whom he foreknew. It's a, a big word that just means those whom he ha had set his affection on before the foundation of the earth. He knew them in a, in a way that he said, I love you before I've even created you. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined or purposed. God purposed that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That's our good. That we would, at the end of our lives, look much more like Christ than we did when we were first saved. That our life is a life of conforming us to the image of Christ. And just like if you think about Michelangelo carving the statue of David, that block of marble that the statue of David was carved out of was rejected twice before Michelangelo got his hands on it was rejected twice by artists who were far more seasoned than Michelangelo was, because Michelangelo was a yet unproven artist when he tackled David. And that block of marble that had been rejected because it was too imperfect, it was beaten up, it was not good enough, it didn't measure up to the standards of what these other artists were looking for, it could never amount to anything, so it was rejected, and then it was left outside, exposed to the elements for years before Michelangelo finally came along and said, hey, can I have a, a crack at that thing? But you think about that big, malformed, ugly, rejected piece of marble, and not to step on your toes, but I'll step on mine as well, that's who we are before Christ. But God looks at us as the way that Michelangelo looked at that block of marble and he says, there's something inside there that I can bring out. I can conform that ugly, rejected, weathered hunk of marble into the image of Christ. And see, that's our good. And that's a, a process that involves a hammer and chisel in the hands of God. And when God uses a hammer and chisel in our lives, sometimes it's going to be a painful experience. When God pulls out the sandpaper to, to sand down our rough edges, that's not necessarily always going to be a, a pleasant experience. But we have to trust that the end product is really what God defines as good. James helps us understand what that practically means in our lives. How that should look. What that means for me day in and day out. It's the process that the Bible refers to as sanctification. Sanctification comes from a, a Greek word that means to be made holy, to be made righteous, to be made like Christ. And the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, 14, he says, for by a single offering, God has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. You see, it's an ongoing process. 
that from the moment that you are saved, hence the cross and the arrow, there's a process that begins at the moment of your conversion that will last for the rest of your life where God will be continually sanctifying you, conforming you into the image of Christ. This was the focus of our series in Romans chapter six, our identity in Christ. Romans six twelve through 14, you remember that idea of now that we're in Christ, we should no longer go on presenting ourselves to sin as slaves of sin, but now we should go on presenting ourselves to God as slaves of obedience, slaves of, of righteousness, right? Well, James puts feet to that. James gives us an understanding of what that actually looks like. The letter of James is written to us, and it's a letter that's written to us, and it's all about wanting us to do something. Wanting us to act, to start putting our profession of faith into practice. In fact, in James, there's 108 verses, and of those 108 verses, there are over 50 commands that are contained in the book of James. It's a book about action. It's not a book about uh, philosophy. It's not a book about the ethereal. It's not a book about uh, concepts that, that don't matter. This is a very practical book about how you take your faith in Christ and put it into action. In fact, that's our first point tonight. You can write it down this way. Because your faith is meant to act. Why, James? Because your faith is meant to act. It's meant to be put into play. It's meant to be lived out. Not just something that you kind of say, hey, I'm a Christian and I'm going to put on a, a, a jacket that has a logo that says Christian on it. And that's how I, I'm going to know that I'm a Christian. That's how I know I'm going to be good. But, but there's really nothing else expected of me. No, becoming a Christian means that you are surrendering your life to God and saying, okay, God, you go to work on my life. Take up your hammer, take up your chisel, and begin to go to work in my life. And your faith is meant to produce action in your life. I don't know if you've ever gotten a, an assignment in seminary, or not in seminary, because you guys haven't been there. Kellen has, there we go. If you've ever gotten an assignment in school, in college, in, in, in high school, you can think back to even, where you look at the assignment, and no matter how many times you read it, you have no clue what your professor or your teacher is asking you to do. Any of you ever, ever been there? Yeah, I was there recently, got an assignment that I was supposed to do. It said this, it said, discuss 2 Kings 17, 1 through 6, because all of us know that right off the top of our head. Discuss this passage on the basis of the data of Israelite and ancient Near Eastern history, because all of us are steeped in those things too. Assuming the maximalist position, if you're wondering what in the world is the maximalist position that I was too when I read this question. Write a summary of the value and limitations of such information to the immediate and following context of the passage. What? Like, I read that thing 10 times, and it's, like, I'm a doctoral student now, so I'm not supposed to have to call my teacher and say, what did you mean by this? But I had to, like, Google what the words meant in this question before I could start figuring out how I was supposed to answer that question. But sometimes we're given a task and we're not really given practically what that looks like to carry it out. It's like getting one of those questions in school that you read and you go, okay, I've got, I, I understand English, I'm not dumb, but I have no clue what you're asking me to do here. See, sometimes we can feel like that's what Christianity is. That God has said to us, you know what, you should be holy as I'm holy. And we hear that and we're like, okay, that's great, but I have no idea where to begin. See, guys, this is what James is going to be able to do for you. Is he's going to give you an understanding, an idea, very practically, day to day in your life, what your Christian faith should look like. What it should be doing, what it should be producing, how it should be living itself out in your day to day life. For some of you, this is a book that's going to equip you practically if you're new to Christianity give you the building blocks, the fundamentals for you. 
Others of you, this is going to jumpstart things. If you feel like you've kind of stalled out a little bit in your faith, and you're thinking, you know what, I, I don't really know how to, to, to get that, that passion back. I don't know how to really get that, that devotion back that I once had. James is going to be a resource for you guys to, to jumpstart you to get back in the game. For others of you, it's going to be a, a, an encouragement to keep pressing on in, in obedience if you feel discouraged. You feel like you've been in the church for years and you've been following Jesus and you feel like you've been a believer for years, but you feel like life is just continually not getting much better for you and you're feeling discouraged. James is going to encourage you to stay the course. And for some of you who are facing difficulty, trial, opposition, suffering in your life right now, James is going to be a a book that's going to give you practical advice on how to endure through that. Why to endure, how to endure, how to stay the course. James is a book all about your faith being put into action, how to live out what God wants you to live out. Just a a quick survey here. In chapter one, we're going to look at how we should respond to trials. Some of the more well-known parts of James, if you've ever spent any time in James, is the opening verse there in verse two. Count it all joy when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James is saying, hey, when you suffer, consider that joy. And that is backwards from what our normal response is, right? But James is going to explain to us why that is and how we should respond as believers to trials in our lives. He's also going to talk about in chapter one how to expose the lies of sin. He's going to lay out for you the, the devil's formula, the enemy's game plan for sin in your life, starting from temptation to what sin produces in your life. And James is going to give you the, the tools that you need to be able to identify that and flee from sin when it's in your life. He's also going to give you an idea and an understanding of how to have an effective devotional life. Another well-known passage in James says that we're not to just be hearers of the word, but also to be doers of the word. And so James is going to help you when you're sitting there going, what am, what am I supposed to do beyond the DBR, the daily Bible reading? What am I supposed to do with my own walk with God, with the Bible? Should, should I be doing more? And the answer is going to be yes, and James is going to help you understand what that looks like. James is also going to help you understand how to be religious in a good way, how to be religious in a good way. A lot of times religion gets a bad name, and I understand why, but religion, we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Because James actually says there is a good form of religion. There's a pure, there's an unadulterated religion that has a a, a bent to care for the needs of other people, to put your faith into action, to be compassionate towards others who are in need, compassionate towards others who aren't as fortunate as you are and come alongside them. So James is going to give you an understanding and an idea of how to do that with your faith. And James too, James is going to give you an understanding and an idea of what it looks like to live in community with other people in a way that you're not judging others, that you're not watching somebody walk into the bridge or watching somebody walk in on a Sunday or a Saturday night and passing judgment based on the way that they look or based on the type of car that they drive or whatever it may be, the type of phone that they have or don't have. James is going to encourage you to approach other people without prejudice, without preference, without bias in your heart and to love them in spite of that. James 3 is going to talk to us about our, our, our words, the words that we speak and how to tame the tongue, and how our tongues can be one of the the most violent weapons that we have to use against other people, and how we can hurt other people with our tongues. And James is going to say, as believers, we need to use our words wisely, and he's going to provide a blueprint for what that looks like. He's going to talk also in chapter 3 about how to be wise with God's wisdom. He's going to say, look, there's a wisdom from the world, but then there's also a wisdom from God, and he's going to describe that wisdom from God so that you can say, yeah, that's the type of wisdom I want to see in my life. 
In chapter four, he's going to talk about battling worldliness. He's going to say, make a, a bold statement in chapter four. He's going to say, look, you cannot be both a friend of the world and a friend of God. Friendship with the world, James is going to say, is hostility towards God, is enmity towards God. If anyone is a friend of the world, James says he's an enemy of God. Now, when we say the world there, we're talking about the world's systems. We're not talking about people in that context. We're talking about the, the system of the enemy, the system of Satan, the, the, the values that, that this world champions. And James is saying, hey, if, if you want to be loved by the, the world and their values, then you can't expect to be loved by God. James 4 is also going to talk to us about how to humbly trust God. What does it look like to battle pride and to, to, to be humbly dependent on the Lord? James 5, how should we have a biblical view of our money? What are the dangers of wealth? What are the dangers of money? And that's going to be practical for where you guys are at because you guys are right on the doorstep of launching into a career, whether you're in school or not. Some of you have gone to trade school. Some of you have just bypassed college altogether, but you're entering into that phase of life in the next three, four, five, maybe 10 years for some of you where you're going to say, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And, and I'll be honest, I was where you guys are at. And I know that, that money is going to drive a lot of that for you. Where can I get paid? Where can I make the most money? And James is going to lay out some, some dangers to be considered in that. And then also James is going to talk to us about how to have an effective prayer life. How to have an effective prayer life, which as believers, the two most important things that we can do on a daily basis is be in the word and be in prayer. And so as we ask why James, it's because James is a practical book. James is a book that's going to help us understand how to live out our faith in this world how our faith should look, how our faith should act. Again, it's the, the feet to Romans 12, 14, 12, uh, sorry, Romans 6, 12 through 14, that, that idea of presenting ourselves to God. What does that actually look like? James helps us understand that. And I don't know about you, but I, I love having instructions. In fact, the, the instructions printed on the back of the box of Kraft macaroni and cheese are my best friend. When my wife cooks it, she just throws the boxes in the trash and eyeballs it, and it comes out fine. But it doesn't come out the way that the, the creator of Mac, Kraft Macaroni and Cheese wanted it to come out. They put the instructions on the back of the box for a reason, right? Not to just eyeball, not to just throw a splash of milk in there like you're just some crazy loon that just is playing fast and loose with death with dairy products. But they want you to do it the way that it's laid out, right? Some of you are going, this guy's way too intense about Kraft macaroni and cheese. But I tell you what, when I make it, it tastes like the way that the guy that, that, that printed those instructions on the back of the box wants it to taste. I like instructions. I like to practically know how to live my life. James is that for us when it comes to the Christian life. But there's another aspect of following Jesus that James helps us with as well. See, he helps us live in a world that the biblical writers describe as a place that's not our home, right? It, it, it's a place that, that we live in as, well, Jesus even said it's, it's a place that, that the world is going to hate us, right? Jesus said, hey, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Don't be surprised at that. In fact, it's also a place that Jesus says this in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. He says, you want to know what it looks like to follow me? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In other words, Jesus is telling you, as somebody who wants to follow after Jesus, he's saying, look, this looks like a life that's lived counterculturally. 
It's a life that's lived taking the values that the world has and dying to those values. The power, the prestige, the fame, the, the glory, the status, the zip code, the, the, the comfort, or whatever it may be. And, it, and Jesus is saying, be willing to let go of those things. Lose those things and you will find true life. Peter says this about following Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, he says, Beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, travelers, exiles, people who are, who are not home, people who are in a, a place that they're daily aware is not their home. I mean, think back to, to the, the book of Daniel, if you guys remember that story where the Israelites have been taken away from their home and they've been dropped into the middle of Babylon. And think about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and ask yourself, do you think those guys ever thought for a day or ever forgot at any time that they weren't home. No, they would have been away, aware of that, right? Some of you are here, and you're going to school here, but your home is somewhere else. And you don't ever mistake your dorm room as home, right? You're always aware, no matter what, that, that this is a temporary place that you are, that you are a sojourner, that you are here temporarily. Well, Peter is saying for us as believers in Jesus Christ that we are in this world temporarily, that we are sojourners, travelers, and so he says, we need to abstain from the passions of our flesh. We need to not live enslaved to what our, our bodies want. We need to not live enslaved to what this world says that we should want. He says, which wage war against your soul. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works, your good deeds, and glorify God when he returns. Peter says this later, he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13, this is prior to this, 13 through 21, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Peter says that we need to be sober-minded, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ when Christ comes back. Then he says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance when you didn't know any better. But as he who is called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. All that to say, guys, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer, God wants you to be different from the world that you live in. He wants you to be holy. In fact, the word ekklesia, which is the Greek word that, that we get the word church from, that word in the Greek, it means to be called out. Right? So in effect, when Jesus forms the church, it's those that are being called out of the world together to be distinct, to be different, to be separate from the world. Now, if you are distinct and different and separate, you're going to stand out. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a situation where you walk in and you don't look like anyone else that's there. You don't feel like anyone else that's there. And you stick out like a sore thumb and there's just no hiding it, right? We had a good friend back in, when I was going to college and he was having a birthday and another buddy of ours was there and we were all hanging out for his birthday and we called him up and we said, hey, his parents are taking us out to this really nice restaurant. You need to dress up. Like we're talking a suit. Like this is, this is a swanky place. And he showed up at the restaurant and I think it was Chili's in his suit, like dressed to the nines and we were all just chilling in shorts and a t-shirt. And he just felt super out of place. We were all looking at him and of course we were laughing at him because that's what good friends do. But that's what we're supposed to be in this world. We're supposed to stand out. We're supposed to be different, but that's not easy. Some of you guys have felt that even just socially and you're like, man, that, that's not fun. Well, God knows it's not, but that's what he's called us to because that's what's, 
the right thing for us to do. So as we're talking about why James, our second point tonight is this, because you need a, a game plan for that. If you're going to be living a life that's holy, that's distinct, that's separate, in a world where Jesus said the world is going to hate you, you need a game plan for that. You can't go it alone. You can't just say, okay, fine, I'm supposed to be holy, I'm supposed to be different, this world's going to hate me, great Jesus, let's just kamikaze this thing. No, you need a plan of action. On D-Day, before the, the troops were launched, before they went on the mission that would turn into one of the greatest military missions that's ever been executed, uh, General Eisenhower spoke to the troops and he said this in a speech. He says, soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But... This is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 40 through 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained and fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, your devotion to duty and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck and let us beseech the almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. It's a powerful speech. In fact, you can watch the, or listen to the audio of at least. If you, you search for it, you can listen to him actually give it live. And it's a powerful speech, especially knowing what happens the next day. But here's the deal. That speech is not enough because those men who went into battle, they still needed a battle plan. They still needed their superiors, the men that were gonna be in the boats with them, that when those doors opened up and the bullets started to fly, they needed their leaders that were there pushing them forward. They needed to know what the plan was after they hit the beach. They needed to know how to keep pressing when their, their, their fellow soldiers were falling with, with bullets, ripping them open left and right. They needed to know where to go. It wasn't enough just to have the, the Supreme Allied Commander and Dwight Eisenhower give them a rah-rah speech, as powerful as that speech was. They needed to be able to know what what to do practically when D-Day happened. And see, guys, we can talk about how much God has done for you. We can talk about the gospel. We can talk about Christ's death on the cross. We can talk about the empty tomb and his resurrection. We can talk about the solid and good and true and strong doctrines that you are forgiven in Jesus Christ and that there's no sin that can separate you now from God, that you are forgiven past, present, and future. We can talk about all those things and we can say, you know what, and God has a plan for you for victory in this world, that he wants to see you conform to the image of Jesus. And we can talk about the fact that God wants you to be holy as he is holy. And we can talk about the fact that there's a day coming when you breathe your life here that you will be in eternity with him, that our victory is secure. But if we never get to the passages like we're going to get to in James, that's not enough. And that's why we have to preach the full 
body of Scripture. See, James is your, your direct report, your guy that's, that's in the trenches with you, and he's giving you the practical instructions about how to go to, to battle spiritually against the, the forces at work in this present world. And so that's why James. James 1, how to engage the opposition when you're facing trials, when you're facing suffering. James 2, how to, to think of one another who are standing alongside you. James 3, how to employ one of our greatest weapons in the words that we speak. James 4, how to resist the enemy. James 5, how to make use of the resources that you've been given. And James 5, how to keep communication open with headquarters. See, it would be cruel of God to look at us and say, you know what, to follow Jesus means to take up your cross and follow him and the world's gonna hate you and you're gonna be as aliens and strangers in this world and this world is gonna mount opposition against you, so good luck. But he didn't do that. That's one of the reasons why he gave us a book like James is to know practically how we should live in a world that's hostile to the God that we love. We may have noticed that I've skipped over a major passage in the book of James so far, and I haven't really touched on it. It's a passage in the book of James, in James chapter 2. Specifically, it's this passage that deals with the relationship between our faith and our works. This is a passage that led Martin Luther, the great reformer who nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the, the Wittenberg Church in Germany. It led him to look at the book of James, and at least early on in his his years of, of being a reformer, he changed his mind later, thankfully, but early on, he looked at James and said, James shouldn't even be in our Bibles. He called it a right straw-y epistle, an epistle of straw, a letter of straw. Apparently, that was a, a major insult back in Luther's day, but today it just sounds odd. But Luther didn't like this, and, and others have not liked this. In fact, others have said, you know what, James disagrees with Paul. James and Paul are at odds with one another, and if you're asking me to choose between James and Paul, I'm going to choose Paul. But what we'll find as we study James is James and Paul really aren't at odds with each other at all. They're looking at the same coin. They're just looking at it from different sides of the same coin. But here's the passage that's in question, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. I'll read it for you. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, but you don't give them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith, though, apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. In other words, this is more than just the, the mental assent to, to the doctrines of Christianity. They believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So some of you may have heard some things even as I was reading that and it it rubbed you the wrong way and you say, okay, I'm with Luther. I get where he's coming from on this. When it says that Abraham was justified by works, no, Paul says he wasn't justified by works. Paul says he was justified by faith. But again, this isn't James disagreeing with Paul or promoting a a works-based salvation. Instead, what James is doing here, what I want us to see and what we'll see as we study this is James is holding out a great way for you to be confident in your relationship with Christ. Our final point tonight is this. Why James? Because we all want that confidence. We all want confidence in our standing with Christ. And in this passage and in others, James is going to provide that for us. And here's how to think about what James is driving at here. If you guys ever gotten a really cool toy, maybe not recently, but maybe prior to this, my my kids have gotten toys recently, a really cool toy, and you open it up, and there's three words that just make you go, and it's not some assembly required. It's three different words. Batteries what? Not included. Batteries not included. And that's so defeating because it's always like a a sextuplet A battery that nobody on earth has that you need to make this thing work. And you're just left and you're like, man, I've got this really cool thing, but it just is going to sit there because I don't have batteries for it. Well, maybe you've pulled something out after a long time and and you're not sure whether or not it, it has batteries in it. What do you do to check? You turn it on, right? And if it works, then what do you know? You know that it has batteries. But if you turn it on and it doesn't work, you know that what? It needs batteries. Well, guys, regeneration in our life, being born again as a believer, is God putting spiritual batteries into us that make us work. And that's what James is talking about here. He's saying, look, when you see a a genuine Christian, their faith should be working because God has put within them the Holy Spirit. God has put within them the, the spiritual batteries that can't help but put the Christian into action. And so that's why he's saying here that a person is justified not by faith alone, but by his works with his faith. Verse 22, you see that faith was active with his works and faith was completed by his works. Does that mean I'm not saved the moment that I believe that I put my faith in? No, but that faith is completed because it's shown, it's made visible by the works that you carry out after that, by the life that you live. The power of your salvation is not in the the things that you do, Right? Think about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross didn't have time to do much after he cried out in dependence upon Jesus, did he? He had very little time left, hours. And while he was alive, the, the, the life that he lived was, was pretty miserable. Hanging and suffocating on a cross. It, it's not that your works save you. It's that if you are saved and you're not a thief on a cross your life is gonna live that out. Your life is gonna bear evidence. And that's where this idea of your confidence comes from, from the book of James. That as you look at at 
your life and examine your life and as you look at all these things that I've already mentioned in the book of James so far tonight and you begin to see these things in your life and you begin to see victory over the things that James is warning against, you can begin to have a a growing confidence that you are indeed a, a follower of Jesus Christ because the faith that God gave you to believe is now at work in your life. You have the spiritual batteries. The flip side of that though is for some of you, maybe in this room, you don't have those batteries. You haven't believed. And so you're gonna be listening to all this stuff and go, I want that, but I just can't do that. And that's because there's no power within you to accomplish that. You can't do it on your own. You can't white knuckle grip and say, today's gonna be different, this time is gonna be different, I'm not gonna do that again. You need to be born again. You need the the spiritual power that God gives you when he gives you the Holy Spirit to transform your life. And it's my prayer that if that's you, that this series opens your eyes to your need for Christ and you're willing to say, okay, I'm, I'm all in and you're willing to surrender your life to follow Jesus. Yeah, this book gives us such a, a great opportunity to, to examine our lives and say, okay, am I a doer of the word or just a hearer of the word? How do I respond to trial? Is it with joy or not? How am I using my words when I speak to other people, when I think about other people? Am I using them for good or for, for evil? How am I passing judgment on other people? How am I thinking about somebody when they walk in the door? Am I looking at them as somebody who is a, a, a person created in the image of God that I need to love or am I passing judgment on them? James chapter four, am I a friend of the world? What does my life look like? Is there worldliness in my life or am I uh, truly a, a friend of God? How's my prayer life, chapter five? So you're gonna be given plenty of opportunities to begin to look around and go, okay, what's going on? Is, is there the, the, that spiritual power that I have in, inside because of what God has done for me? Is that working itself out in my life or not? All of us are gonna need tune-ups. I'm not suggesting that any of us are gonna have all of this nailed. Be like, well, I'm great, I'm, I'm doing perfect across the board. All of us are gonna need tune-ups in this. But that's why James. Why James? Because we all need a, a game plan for following Christ in this world because God wants our, our faith to be active and because he's gonna help us find that security that we long for. Again, for some, this is gonna be a book that's gonna be a catalyst to open your eyes to your need for Christ. For others, it's gonna open your eyes to your, your stagnancy. And it's gonna light a fire in your life so that you're ready to, to, to run harder after Christ than you're running now. And for some of you, this is just gonna be a, a good reminder to spur you on still more in your faith. You're doing great right now. Things are going well right now. And this book is just gonna bolster that and encourage you in that and spur you on still more. But wherever you are in that spectrum, this book is gonna be worth your time. This study is gonna be worth your time because it's gonna bring you face to face with a a book that is incredibly practical for us where it's gonna get on the ground. It's gonna get in your kitchen, so to speak. It's gonna get in your life and it's gonna call you to respond. It's gonna call you to live this out. And I hope that as a result of this book, all of us are gonna look different, myself included, on the back end of James than we do right now. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for this book, thankful for James, thankful for its practicality, its directness, Lord, its, its clarity, its understanding. Lord, we're so thankful that you have given us a, a way to 
put the, our, our faith into action and haven't left us alone in that and said, hey, good luck. Lord, this world that we live in is hostile to you and it's hostile to Christianity. But God, I, I pray that we would take our, our marching orders from you and that we would be able to live lives that are effective for you in this world. Lord, use this book and this study this semester to accomplish great things in our lives for your glory in Christ's name, amen.